As we come to this passage, I want you to look at verse 24, because that really sums up what this whole passage is about. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This passage is all about authority. Jesus' authority, where does it come from? Now, this is a really important question for us because I would go so far as to say that the question of authority, who has it, where is it located, who can we trust, is probably for the last couple of hundred years the great question that sits at the center of Western civilization. Today, we are prone to thinking that authority is located only in the individual because we have come to distrust all of the traditional sources of authority that were out there. Sociologist Christian Smith has written a book a few years ago called Souls in Transition, and he's looking at emerging adults growing up in the Western world. And he highlights in that book how this question of authority shapes everything for emerging adults, young adults, that is. It questions and shapes, sorry, um, how they live. It shapes their life choices. It shapes where they look to, how they vote. He quotes, According to emerging adults, the absolute authority for every person's beliefs or actions is his or her own self. In other words, you want to know where authority is located today? It's located in me. I am the arbiter of authority. How should I live? I decide. What is true? Well, that's down to me to decide, right? How should I, I vote? Well, that's for me to decide. And I'm conscious that even as I'm saying this, you may well be thinking, well, well where else would you look to authority? Because we're, we're so steeped in that way of thinking that we wouldn't even question it. And so in that context, when Jesus comes into you know, the world and says, I am the ultimate authority. I am the one with heavenly authority. I am Lord then, of course, that, that raises huge questions for us. If we're, if we're honest, we actually find that a threat. We might think, well, no, we don't want you deciding, Jesus, how we should live our lives. I mean, after all, the key is they're our lives. We decide, don't we? We might be thinking, look, Jesus is a savior, one who forgives, who's merciful. I can go with that. But Jesus is a Lord, one who teaches me and tells me how to live and has authority over my life. I'm not sure how I feel about that. So how is it that this authority of Jesus cannot be a threat to us, but can be something which is attractive and which draws us in? Well, for that, this passage is absolutely key, and I want us to see three things as we go through our passage together. First of all, that Jesus' authority is a humble authority. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 11. Secondly, that Jesus' authority is a just authority. We're going to see that in verses 12 to 22. And then as we look at how you can draw humility and justice together in the same person, we're going to see in the final section, verses 23 to 27, that Jesus has a heavenly authority. So let's look, first of all, at a humble authority, verses 1 to 11. First of all, let's just get our bearings and remind ourselves where we're up to in Matthew's gospel. We've been saying all along that Matthew composes his gospel around five key blocks of teaching, just as the Old Testament was written on the foundation of the first five books, the Pentateuch as they were known. So Jesus, as the authoritative teacher for God's people, structures um, himself around these five key blocks of teaching. And so we had the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five to seven. 
We had Jesus' teaching on mission in chapters 9 to 10. We had Jesus' teaching on the parables and in the kingdom of God in chapter 13. Last week with Mark, we looked at Jesus' teaching on the community of God's people, the church, in chapter 18. And we've got one more section of teaching to come up, which is Jesus' teaching on the end times, as they're often known. That is what's to come, uh, the final stages of God's kingdom, coming kingdom, in verses 24, sorry, in chapters 24 to 25. So we find ourselves here with Jesus as he ascends to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And in our passage, he enters into the temple courts. And now from chapter 21 all the way through until chapter 25, everything is located in the temple pretty much. Jesus only leaves to go and have a night's sleep one mile away in Bethany, and then he comes back. So all of this for the next um, four or five chapters is based in the temple. And in that context, as we see Jesus coming in, pick up with the narrative with me of verse 1 of chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her, uh, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Notice, first of all, Jesus' authority. Here he is orchestrating all of the events. He tells the disciples what to do. He tells them exactly where to go. And notice that strange phrase in verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. It would be normal if um, disciples were talking about their rabbi to say, our Lord. But this isn't our Lord, this is the Lord, an extra status of authority implying that Jesus has authority over all things. And the very fact that it all unfolds exactly as Jesus says points to his authority. But then look at the juxtaposition, look at the contrast with verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle or humble and riding on a donkey. Jesus is here fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah 9 um, with a bit of Isaiah 62 over the top on Say to Your Daughter Zion. And this prophecy of Zechariah 9, um, the Messiah, the anointed king, is contrasted with kings who might come in war on a, a white steed, on a white horse, because he comes in gentleness, in humility, riding on a donkey. Now, of course, it's not just in the 21st century that self-promotion has been in vogue. It was huge in the ancient world as well. If you wanted to people, if you were a great king, you would want people to know you were great. Uh, if you were great at academia, you would want people to know you were great, and so you would broadcast it from the rooftops. I've used this illustration before because it makes the point, but Josephus, the ancient and very famous Jewish historian, when he wrote his autobiography, wrote this as the introduction. See the self-promotion. It's almost 21st century-esque. My family, he wrote, is not an ignoble one, tracing its descent far back to priestly ancestors. Not only, however, were my ancestors priests, but they belonged to the first of the 24 courses, a peculiar distinction, and to the most eminent of its constituent clans. Brought up with Matthias, my own brother, I made great progress in my education, gaining a reputation for an excellent memory and understanding. While still a mere boy, about 14 years old, I won universal applause for my love of literature, insomuch as the chief priests and leading men of the city would come to me for wisdom and information. And he goes on and on and on. See the self-promotion? Now, in that contrast, when we look at Jesus, he comes in humility. 
And here's the thing, I think that sits much better with us because whenever someone is into self-promotion, whenever someone has that kind of shrill tone of voice that they have to say how great they are, make you believe how great they are, intuitively we kind of think, if you were really great, you wouldn't need to be protesting to everybody how great you were. After all, true greatness is just recognized, isn't it? I mean, think of um, a great sports person like Lewis Hamilton. He doesn't need to walk around telling everyone how great he is for us to recognize that he is great. Greatness can be actually recognized in the greatness of someone who is secure enough not to feel the need to try to force it on everybody. In fact, that probably undermines their greatness because it shows that they're not really convinced they're that great after all. They're trying to convince everybody with a shrill tone of voice. Not so with Jesus. He is so great, he has the greatness to be humble. And so he comes riding on a donkey. And yet still the people recognize it. Verse 5, they recognize he's a king. Verse 9, they recognize he's the son of David, which means he's the long-promised anointed king, Israel's Messiah, the anointed figure. And do you see how the people treat him? They lay down cloaks before him. Some cut down branches and lay them down, which is not great for the gardeners, but it was a symbol of putting, your, putting him over you, a symbol of laying everything down before him, saying, I'm under your authority. The crowds do it without Jesus saying, you must do it. He doesn't force it on them. He doesn't shout at them as saying, serve me. They do it willingly because they recognize his greatness. He has the greatness to be humble. You know, one of the reasons I think um, young generation is so concerned about authority and locates it within themselves is because they have come to mistrust those who claim to be great, those who claim to have authority. They've heard the shrill tone of voice. They've seen the self-promotion, and they think, you're not truly great. But Jesus doesn't come and say, serve me. He comes humble, gentle, riding on a donkey. And when people see that, it beckons them to him, and they willingly lay down themselves before him and say, this is a humble authority. It's not a threat. I will lay myself down before you. I wonder, where are you when you think about Jesus' authority? But Jesus doesn't just come as a humble authority, but he also comes with a just authority. And this is really important because very often in life, when you meet someone who is naturally humble, then they often struggle to also be bold and courageous and to be a truth teller. We really struggle as human beings to inhabit a personality that has both humility and also the strength to be just and to fight for justice. Not so with Jesus. Look at verses 12 to 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables to the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, what's going on here? In the temple of um, Jerusalem, up on the, the temple mount, the temple had three courts, as it were known. Think of it as kind of three layers the outer court was the so-called court of the Gentiles. That was the place where the non-Jews could go. But they weren't allowed to enter into the next inner court, which was the court of the women. That was where the women in a patriarchal society were allowed to go. And they certainly weren't allowed to enter into the inner court, um, which is where only the Jewish men could go. And so effectively, there was a kind of hierarchy. So if you were from not from the Jewish nation, and you wanted to go up to the temple to worship God, you would have to stay out in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. 
But what have the Jews done with the outer court? They've turned it into a shopping mall. People coming up to Jerusalem want to offer sacrifices. They need to change money from their currency to buy those sacrifices, things like doves or lambs or goats or things like that. And instead of that being outside the temple, the Jews have worked out, well, actually, we'll make more money if we bring it inside the temple. And so you're there as a Gentile, and you're wanting to pray and sing praises and worship God, the true God of heaven and earth, and you've got a, a sheep bleating in your ear and a dove cooing. You, you can't do that. You've got dung on the ground. Think about it for a moment. And not only that, when Jesus says that you've turned my house into a den of robbers, he's making a strong hint that we probably know from history that actually they were, um, if you like, cutting the rates of the exchanges so that they were fleecing people out of more money, charging them probably at least an extra price, for after all, this is money changing in the Temple Mount. And so there's exploitation of the Gentiles going on here, there's desecration of the Temple. It is grossly in unjust. What is Jesus going to do with that? He's humble, right? He's come on a donkey. Won't say boo to a goose. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Far from it. Jesus will act when he sees injustice. And so he drives them out. The phrase we would use today, he cleans house. The house of God has become corrupt. What does he do with it? He cleans house. You want to know whether Jesus cares about injustice. I mean, even this last week, we've had yet another scandal over in the U.S. with another evangelical leader being exposed for immorality in the light of an already brutal year of leaders being exposed for everything from abuse to sexual immorality. In the same year when we've had the independent inquiry into child sex abuse finally published, and it paints a hideous picture of many aspects of the Church of England, our own denomination. And as you look at that, of course, any normal person looks at that and thinks, doesn't Jesus care about his church? Isn't Jesus going to do something about his church? Yeah, he will. This is what he does. He cleans house. Well, you may say, well, he hasn't done it yet. Well, look at the parable he tells about the fig tree. He tells a parable, a worked-out parable, as it were, with a fig tree. When he sees a fig tree, which very unusually has got its full leaves up but doesn't have fruit. If you know anything about um, fig trees, then you know that the moment the leaves come up, the fruit is also there, and then it ripens very slowly over a number of months. And so Jesus comes to a fig tree that has no fruit. Fruitfulness in the Old Testament is symbolic of a godly life, a just community, the type of life God wants his people to live. And when Jesus sees the fig tree with no fruit, he uses it as an enacted parable of what he's seen at the temple, a temple with no fruit, a temple full of corruption and injustice. And so here, when he curses the fig tree and then the disciples see it wither, he is making the point. He has pronounced his judgment already on the temple, and now it is just a case of waiting for that hammer of judgment to fall. And in history, it did fall. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed because of the corruption that was in its midst and had been in its midst. And it has never been rebuilt, even to this day. 2,000 years on, the temple at Jerusalem has not been rebuilt. That shows the certainty of Jesus' justice. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right, the Old Testament asks? He will. And so if you're looking at the scandals in the church and you're thinking, won't God do something? Yeah, he will. There might be a delay. 
because God is patient with his justice, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But he has set a day when he will judge all things. He will not sweep injustice under the carpet. This enacted parable with a fig tree makes it clear. The history of the temple makes it clear. Jesus sees it all. And if you're angered about the injustice, trust me, it's nothing compared to the anger he sees. With a just and settled anger, his authority will deal with all injustice. But just note a thing before we finish. In verse 14, the blind and the lame come to him at the temple and he heals them. Here's the point about Jesus' justice. It is so carefully meted out It is so wonderfully distributed because he is so just that it ultimately brings what all justice should be about, healing and restoration. So a humble authority, a just authority, which raises the question, how can you have these two aspects of authority come together in one person? I mentioned before, normally they're juxtaposed, they're in contrast with one another. People who are just and are truth warriors often lack humility and gentleness because they've had to be hardened for the fight. People who are humble and gentle and meek struggle to tell the truth and to bring it into the light and to fight for injustice, but not with Jesus. How is it that he is both? We'll look at the last section, verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus sees the trap here, right? He sees that they're not really trying to find it out. It's not a genuine question. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to question him in front of the crowds. And so Jesus replies with another question, verse 24. I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, this puts the Pharisees on the horns of a dilemma, because if they say John the Baptist's authority was merely human, then the people who celebrate John as the greatest prophet that he was will rebel against them, and they, of course, care far too much about the people. They're just trying to court their attention, so they can't possibly say that. But if they acknowledge that John the Baptist's authority was from heaven, John the Baptist's ministry was all about who? Jesus. He says that one will come after me that I'm not even worthy to type his shoelaces. That's Jesus. And so John the Baptist validates Jesus' authority. So if they say John the Baptist's authority was from heaven, they're saying that Jesus is the great Messiah, and they can't do that. So they don't know what to reply. They're caught on the horns of our dilemma. Their hypocrisy is exposed, and so they say nothing. But the implicit answer to the question is, John's authority is from heaven, and so where does Jesus' authority come from? Heaven. You know, Jesus is often described in Scripture as both a lion and also a lamb. How do you hold those two realities together? They're very different animals, aren't they? A lion, majestic, strong, powerful enough to fight injustice, courageous enough to protect his people. A lamb, meek, humble, gentle, approachable. How can Jesus be both? You don't find people who are both. And it's not that one makes him less of the other. He is fully a lion, ready to roar at injustice. He is fully a lamb, gentle and meek, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. How can he be both? Because he's not a human leader, or not merely a human leader. He is a heavenly leader. His authority comes not because he's been voted for, not of human origin, 
It is sent from God. He's the anointed king. The Spirit of the Lord rests on him. And as God's great, eternal, anointed king, he is fully a lion and he is fully a lamb. He is fully just and he's fully humble. You find those two qualities brought together in him that you would never see in that way in any human leader. And ultimately, I put it to you, that's an authority which you want to be under. An authority which is gentle enough to restore you. An authority which is courageous enough to fight for you. A humble and just authority. And ultimately, when you see those two qualities in Jesus, you see them nowhere better than where he's going in a few chapters' time at the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, you see his commitment to justice, that God will not sweep injustice under the carpet. How can God forgive those who are unjust without being unjust himself? Not by sweeping it under the carpet, but by paying for it on the cross. You want to know God's commitment to justice? You want to know if God really is speaking truth when he says, I will clean house? Look at the cross. He cares so much about injustice that he was even prepared to let his son, his only son, die for all the sins we commit, for all the injustice in our own lives, so that anyone who turns to him, no matter how bad the injustice they've committed, can be forgiven. That's the scandal of grace. But it's a commitment to justice on God's part. And at the same time of the cross, you see Jesus becoming weak, gentle, humble as he lets wicked people string him up on the cross. He allows it to happen because he's humble. He submits himself to the Father's plan in humility. And therefore, he is infinitely accessible because he has the greatest authority, the authority to be humble and open and gentle. As the words of the hymn say, come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen. My friends, I know at this moment that you will have a hundred questions about the lockdown. What is God doing? Is God for me? What is going on in the church? What about all these scandals? Ultimately, it's a question of authority. Who do you trust? Are you going to look within yourself, place the burden of your own expectations on your shoulders, and ultimately find it crushing, feeling like you can't trust anyone in the world? Or are you going to look to Jesus, the one who has a humble authority, which means you can come to him. The one who has a just authority, which means you can trust him. The one who has a heavenly authority, which means he is always for you. He's died for you. He's in control of all things. He'll never leave you or forsake you. So come to him. Trust him. Lay yourself down before him. He's the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we need to see Jesus as he really is. This is Jesus, the humble king, the just king, the heavenly king. Help us to change our view if we think of his authority as a threat, instead to see it as something which draws us in. Help us to lay down our desire for independence, pushing into the peripheries of our lives, and instead to welcome it and to hear his teaching and to hear his call to follow me and obey. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.